This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Jim Heffelfinger is the Wildlife Science Coordinator for the Arizona Game and Fish Commission. Jim Heffelfinger is from Mississippi State University, that's how we connected. Uh, But he is just a strong scientist that advocates for hunting across the board. He's involved in multiple science groups, and today's discussion really focuses around the Mexican wolf recovery that he has been a part of and he has been uh, involved with. And we really wanted to just, I just wanted to get an idea of where we are with the recovery effort, how did it come to be, and how does this massive impact of Colorado putting northern wolves on the landscape impact the amount of work and effort and time and money that has gone into the Mexican wolf recovery just south of Colorado. Fascinating discussion. You're going to love Jim and we're going to have him back on multiple times because he's just he's just a wealth of resources as you will hear and is just just a good dude that knows his stuff. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name, my name is... Does my hair look okay? It's my name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Well, honestly, I think that um, I have been trying to get you on this podcast for 
I don't want to lie here, Heffelfinger. <laughs> Six months? Nine yeah, it's months? Been, it's been a while. We keep moving and sending emails and traveling and working hard. Exactly, exactly. But, um, yeah, it's finally happening, and uh, we're going to pin this one down, and then we'll pin another one down, because we have mm-hmm. another topic that we are very interested in discussing in the future. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you're one of the, as I said to you before we, we hit record, you know, I'm accused of not sleeping very much. I, I know that you sleep very little in comparison to me because I get emails from you at three in the morning, four in the morning, and you're like, oh, I'm just finishing writing my book chapter now. And I'm like, gosh, dang, dude. That's the only time I can get some work done is that night when the world is sleeping. Oh, man, I remember being a professor at Mississippi State University. Um and arriving in my office at 6 a.m. Do you remember, were you there when um, Thompson Hall was in place? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so we Thompson were at Mississippi Hall, my State. Office, yeah, my office was on the second floor as you came up the staircase. It's the first one on the right. Eric Dibble used to be in that office. And um, I'd get there at 6 a.m. and I'd do more work between 6 a.m. and 8.15 than I would the rest of the day. Yeah. Because then you've got grad students coming and professors knocking to have coffee. Don Jackson would walk in with his coffee yep. and want to sit down and talk about fisheries and philosophy and how his bird dog pointed an amazing quail that morning. <laughs> That's right. I know. I have miscellaneous meetings and Zoom meetings and phone calls and things on my to-do list. And, and then when everybody goes to sleep, that's when I can just block out time and do, do get a lot done. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, Jim Heffelfinger, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Not the first time. Um, this is the first time, but not certainly not the last. Um, and I much appreciate everything that you have said about what we do. Um, the email encouragement that you've sent um, it, it certainly hasn't gone unnoticed. So thank you and welcome. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I ask important questions like, "What's agave?" I yes. I asked yes. What's agave? I was like, have, you know, have a finger. You're <laughs> you live like by the, the border. You live next to the border. You're a very, very astute, intelligent academic. Dare I call you an academic scientist? And I have to explain to you what a tequila-based alcoholic product is that is not yeah. made in Mexico has to be called. Outside yeah. of Mexico. Yeah, see, I don't understand why anybody's drinking anything that's not made from blue agave. It probably is made from blue agave. It <laughs> but just in Colorado. Called tequila. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, uh, introduce yourself and who you are and what you do uh, for the audience. Yeah, sure. I'm uh, the, the wildlife science coordinator for Arizona Game and Fish Departments. I've been with the Game and Fish Department for 31 years. In a couple weeks, it'll be 31 years. Um, I also have uh, an appointment, unpaid appointment, um, an adjunct faculty position with the University of Arizona in the School of Natural Resources and the Environment. And in that position, they call a full research scientist, uh, basically adjunct faculty. And I've had a long history of working with the university. I'm a liaison with my agency with the university and have, have gone in and guest lectured and, and sat on graduate committees and collaborated with faculty and mentored students for about 25 years now. So a long history of kind of having one foot in the academic world and one foot in the pragmatic management world, which gives me a a unique perspective on on a lot of things. Uh, I also chair a 
a mule deer working group for the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, which is a mule deer expert from 24 Western states and Canadian provinces. And we get together and we work a lot on, on continent-wide, range-wide mule deer conservation issues. And that puts me kind of in a position to also be in touch with and work with other people on a lot of large ungulate, uh, large mammal issues in, in the West. That, that's pretty interesting. And in the last mm-hmm. 12 years or so, I've been at the forefront of, of Mexican wolf recovery for Arizona Game and Fish. The Fish and Wildlife Service is a lead agency, but the uh, state agencies are important conservation partners mm-hmm. in, in the recovery mm-hmm. of endangered species. Well, and that's what we wanted to talk about today. Today's um, podcast is all going to be about recovery, uh, specifically of Mexican wolves. Uh, but I think the the conversation will broaden into sort of unintended consequences of other recovery efforts on undoing good conservation work that, that that's happening on the ground. And this came about uh, almost a similar type situation to your agave situation in that um, <laughs> you called my ass out and you're like, hey, FYI, we don't have red wolves. Um we're talking about Mexican wolves, mm-hmm. and they're completely different. And I don't know. I, I'll blame Cody. Cody is mm-hmm. a bad influence on me when it comes to you know really telling the, the the truth about these types of species. So let's just start right there, Jim. Um, red wolves are an eastern wolf uh, subspecies or species, and a Mexican wolf is a completely different subspecies. Or species, it, it is completely right? different than the red wolves. The taxonomy and the, the evolution of red wolves is really, really confusing. Everybody's still arguing about it, but uh, it's easy to confuse red wolves and Mexican wolves because they're both smaller, they're both southern, they're both endangered. And so people mix those up all the time. But red wolves are the wolves that are being recovered in, in North Carolina. Um, and they've, they've found some some canids that have kind of a red wolf um, genetic heritage in Louisiana along the Gulf Coast on Galveston Island. So mm. there, there's people working on all that stuff, but that's a southeastern wolf. And uh, the Mexican wolf uh, evolved uh, almost entirely in Mexico and the Sierra Madre with um, their range coming up into southern and, and uh, southern New Mexico and southern Arizona and, and, and kind of intermixing with a bigger wolf in central Arizona and, and central New Mexico. But those geographically and, and just ecologically very different wolves. So let's talk about the range to start with, because I think that that's almost will set the context for what we're going to talk about. Um, you sent me a paper by Odell in 2018. And in that paper, there's a very good sort of graphical description or graphical representation of the Mexican wolf range. Mm-hmm. Um, one that was de- de- sort of depicted by a bunch of scientists, Nelson and Goldman, Bailey, Young and Goldman, Hall and Kelson, Hofmeister, Nowak, spanning from 1929 all the way to 1995. And then there's a an overlay of the range that was, and the language written in this document is range expanded mm-hmm. by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 1996, and this this it's significant in comparison yeah. to the quote unquote historical range. Mm-hmm. Yes. Why the so, difference? Yeah. Jim? So so the um, you talk about the paper that was written by scientists uh, defining uh, all of those scientists defining the historic range of the Mexican wolf. 
through throughout history from the first time they were first described by Goldman in 1929 up to about 2005, all of the ecologists and taxonomists all agreed what the historical range of the Mexican wolf was. And that was what I described, the Sierra Madre in Mexico, and then the sky, these little sky island mountain ranges in southern Arizona and southern New Mexico. Uh, but as we started getting serious about recovering Mexican wolves, there were some people that really wanted to try to define more historical range in the U.S. And so it really was one one lab and the graduate students that came out of that lab that had produced all of the all of the kind of advocating scientific papers advocating for a more northern range of the, the Mexican wolf. And so you started seeing people trying to justify Mexican wolves being much farther north. And I say 2005 was the start of that trend because there was a paper mm -hmm. that came out at that time that looked at mitochondrial haplotypes. And even though we, we know almost nothing about the historical distribution of those haplotypes, they defined a, a haplotype that was very common in Mexican wolves. And they, they identified three other ones that were related. And so they called any wolf that had any of those four haplotypes, they called a Mexican wolf. And, and then they interpreted that data to say that Mexican wolves used to be in Nebraska. And they used to be in in northern Utah, which really is is ridiculous. That's using some little fragments of mitochondrial DNA that we don't know much about, mm -hmm. and then trying to advocate for a policy position that is recovering Mexican wolves north uh, north of their historic range, based on that. Um, and then other people have come to follow to trying very hard to justify Mexican wolf recovery entirely in the U.S., but. But all of the, the ecological, all of the historical writings, skull morphometrics show that Mexican wolves came up. They interchanged with a larger wolf in central Arizona and central New Mexico. They weren't in Nebraska. They weren't in Utah. But they interchanged okay. with that northern wolf in central Arizona and central New Mexico. Um, and then we had a, a much larger northern wolf to the north of that. So when the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, started getting serious about actually getting Mexican wolves on the ground and, and recovering the Mexican wolf in, in their portion in the U.S. that they wanted to start in because they had control over that, um, the, the highest density of prey for wolves was that central Arizona, central New Mexico mm -hmm. area where they interchanged with that northern wolf. And so they took the historic range of the Mexican wolf that everybody agreed on, and they expanded that 200 miles north to encompass that area with a lot of prey to give them a better chance of recovering the Mexican wolf. And, and that was not an, an invalid, I think, decision because there were okay. Mexican wolves that dispersed up into that area. So they were just encompassing all of that peripheral area where they interchange with a larger wolf. And so um, I don't think there was a lot of disagreement about that. But a lot of advocates now have said, okay, they're there. Why don't we put them in Utah and Colorado? Why don't we put them farther north? And they're trying to push that north really so that we don't have to collaborate with our friends and colleagues in Mexico, which which I, I do an awful lot of. Uh, but there's some people that want everything done in the U.S. so they've got control through litigation mm -hmm. in the courts mm -hmm. and they control everything that happens. If we collaborate with our friends and colleagues in Mexico and recover wolves, which we're doing, recover wolves binationally, then they don't have as much control over controlling. People like to control everything that's done in the wolf world. Jim, what is the population status of Mexican wolves in Mexico? Are they doing very well? They, Mexican wolves went extinct everywhere. And in about okay. 1980, the Fish and Wildlife Service hired a trapper named Roy McBride to go into Mexico and trap um, whatever Mexican wolves he could to start a captive breeding uh, population because they were going to disappear for sure if that wasn't done. So he trapped a couple of wolves in Mexico. They had a couple in captivity. They put together nine wolves 
um, for the captive breeding program. Only seven of those wolves have contributed to the Mexican wolves we have now. So all Mexican wolves on the planet come from seven individual wolves okay. in that captive breeding program. And they were extinct in the wild. So they've been reintroduced into Arizona, New Mexico, one of the recovery areas. And, and there's that population is doing very well. We can talk about the status of that population. But then there's a second population started in northern Chihuahua, which is one of the areas where this trapper found the last Mexican wolves. It's the mm -hmm. best Mexican wolf habitat. And there's 40 to 45 wolves in the wild, radio collared, um, people monitoring those, following those wolves. And, and just like we're doing in the U.S., Mexican biologists led by Carlos Lopez Gonzalez in Chihuahua are monitoring those. And then the Mexican government's talking about uh, a second area in Durango being a possibility, which is actually the second area where Roy McBride found the last Mexican wolf. So it's great. It's great habitat down there too. It, it, I, I'm sure this has come up. And when you look at the map and you look at wolf recovery, or you just look at general wildlife recovery, and you look at ranges of recovery and so not ranges of recovery, but ranges of distribution. You really don't want to focus on the fringes. Right. That's right. Yeah, that is um, it. It's not a successful plan. And we learned that with the mass bobwhite, which is an endangered bobwhite quail centered in Sonora. And they established a fish and wildlife refuge right on the Mexican border in southeastern Arizona to recover the mass bobwhite. And, and people said all along that is the northern fringe of their distribution mm -hmm. and and farther away from what you call their ecological center uh, of their distribution so it's really the same thing with with mexican wolves and the people advocating a more northern recovery of the mexican wolf they're advocating recovering wolves in an ecological environment that they didn't evolve in they're not evolved for the snowy uh, southern rocky mountains they're evolved for right. the sierra madre and so and people talk about, well, because of climate change, they throw down what I call the climate change card. Climate change, we have to go north and we have to go uphill. But eco uh, ecological niches for animals are not that simple that you just go north or uphill and you're good. Ecological niches, you have to look at each situation. And if you're concerned about climate change future for Mexican wolf recovery, why would you try to recover them in the Grand Canyon National Park, this arid, fragmented area mm. without much prey base on the f northern fringe of their, actually above their historical distribution? If you're concerned about climate change, you go to this giant Sierra Madre mountain that's high elevation, well-watered pine, oak, woodland, and, and you recover them in the core of their ecological uh, range, not at some mm -hmm. northern fringe of it. Mm -hmm. So it's all about control. Yeah, for sure. So let's 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 rewind a little bit and talk about sort of how this all started because we all know not we all know, but let's set in the scene. When a when an animal is endangered in in this regard extinct, a a recovery plan is put in place that the Fish and Wildlife Service pretty much is in charge of that says, Okay, and I'm going to be overly simplistic, Jim, so please don't hurt me, okay? I'm just, <laughs> that, uh, that really says, this is how many animals we want to see on the ground in a certain period of time in order to be quote-unquote successful in this recovery. Mm -hmm. Did I yeah. capture that correctly? Yes, right. And, but we don't, we don't consider them extinct because they're still on the planet. Extinct is gone forever. <clears throat> Sometimes people talk about extinct in one area, and that, 
you see that so even endangered. As, endangered's a good, a good right. You see that even in scientific yeah. literature, but it's not really a good way to use that word. So, so they're not extinct. But you're right. The Fish and Wildlife Service then has to construct a recovery plan um, to decide, and you have to decide thresholds and triggers, and say when they meet these, when we can check the box on all these things, that we are going to consider them no longer in danger of extinction. And the Mexican wolves in 1982, there was a Mex- there was a Mexican wolf recovery plan that was written at that time. Now, this is long before, this is about two years after Roy McBride brought a couple wolves in to start uh, a captive population. So there's almost no Mexican wolves in the wild and almost no Mexican wolves in captivity. And so they wrote a recovery plan. And when they wrote it, they said, they're not recoverable. They said, we don't think that you could recover the Mexican wolf. They only had a a handful of wolves. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they just couldn't see a successful path. So what they said was, in the 1982 recovery plan is if we could just get a hundred Mexican wolves in the wild, we would consider that a win. That's not recovery. You can't have a hundred of one animal in one basket and consider that not in danger of extinction. But they said, if we could just get a population of a hundred, we would consider that um, a, a lofty goal, a good, a good goal. Um, and if we continue to grow the captive population. And so they started growing that captive population. And all of a sudden by the late 1990s, they had quite a few wolves in captivity and they started thinking, you know what, we could actually, maybe we could actually make this happen. And so in the 90s, they put together another recovery team and they said, we want you to rewrite that 1982 recovery plan to actually chart a course towards real recovery because the first team mm-hmm. didn't think you could. Um, that team failed to update with, with any kind of um, meaning. Failed what to do you mean though, plan. Jim? Like how does, how does somebody charged to update a plan fail to update a plan? Well, at, at that time, I think that first instance, this is mid 1990s. So it was, um, right. I wasn't involved in Mexican Bulls at all at that time. So I can't tell you firsthand, but they got together and, and were, um, we're talking about, well, how do we call this? Or when do we call Mexican wolves fully recovered? And at some point it kind of burned out. And I don't know the details about why that recovery plan, a team burned out, but they, okay. rein, they reinstated another um, recovery team. And, and so that was like the third recovery team in um, about 2000, 2003, 2005. And that recovery team, it was a little different. And in between, just to, just to, in between the second update and the third update is when the first set of Mexican wolves were released, right? Right, yeah. So 1998, they said, okay, we don't have a, a, an updated recovery plan, so we don't know the end game. We don't know what we're going to call recovered. But we've got enough wolves in captivity, and they started working towards releasing wolves. In 1998, they did release 11 wolves in, in this Arizona, New Mexico um, population in the wild. But they still knew that, okay, we need a recovery plan because we need some well-defined goals. But we could at least get we can get the wild population started, and they did. Um, and so, two thousand three, two thousand five, they got a recovery team together. That one failed specifically because of a court order. At that time, they designated this distinct population segment, which is an area that encompassed part of Colorado and Utah, and they call it a distinct population segment. And then they they were they were tasked with recovering Mexican. How could wolves. they call it? A, how could they call it a DPS when they've just only released eleven and? this sort of expansion of historical range was just almost, yeah. dare I say, nonsensical. I, yeah, I don't understand, because they went all the way up to Denver pretty much with the, that distinct population segment. So it was outside of historical range. Uh, but they, they were designated in a couple DPSs around the country, the Northern Rockies and all these other things. And they designated that Southwestern DPS and a, a judge vacated that or did away with that DPS or dissolved it. 
And so the team that was then tasked to recover wolves in that area then was dissolved because their their task was no longer uh, valid. There's no DPS anymore to recover that. And so that was it. That was in 2003, 2005. And so then it simmered along. The wolf population um, was was kind of flatlined, but wasn't doing real good in the in the wild. Um, and then in 2010, they put together the fourth recovery team, which I was a member of. I was a member of the science and planning subgroup. And we got together and started talking about what, how do we define recovery in the Mexican wolf? And there's a lot of disagreement. Most everybody um, was, was charging off in this direction. Everybody else actually on the recovery team was charging off in this direction where one population was going to be in the Grand Canyon National Park. One population was going to be in Vermejo Park Ranch in northern New Mexico on the Colorado mm -hmm. border. And the third population was where the wolves were in central Arizona, New Mexico. And I was on the science planning subgroup. And I, I was new in Mexican wolf recovery, but I was saying, wait a minute, why aren't we just evaluating the historical range of the Mexican wolf and seeing if there's enough habitat to use historical range, including Mexico in the U.S.? Right. Because we have binational recovery, binational recovery plans for ocelots and jaguars and black-footed ferrets and condors and sonoran pronghorn and mass bobwhite. But when you start talking about um, uh, allowing Mexico to be a partner in the recovery of the Mexican wolf, People seem to just go bonkers and say, "No, no, no! We're you know we're Americans. We got this." It was kind of an arrogant. We don't want to work with Mexico. We it was want almost control. like we we don't Mexican wolves do not exist in Mexico. They only exist in the United States, according to this recovery effort. Yeah, the the rest of the recovery team says we want to recover them in three populations in the U.S. We don't want to have to rely on on Mexico. In uh, despite only ten percent of the Mexican wolf historical range being in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So 90% of their historic range, the ecological area that they evolved in, is in Mexico. And this group of people that I was working with on the recovery team wanted to do it 100% in the U.S., in areas that were above their their historical range. And, and I said, even being new to Mexican wolves, I said, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Why aren't we evaluating historical range and then deciding if we have enough habitat to recover them in historic range? And if we do, uh, where are the best areas to recover them? And they were relying on a, um, a very flawed and biased habitat analysis that that some of those individuals did, where mm -hmm. it's, there was a strong push to get wolves on the Vermejo Park Ranch, because one of the members worked for Ted Turner, and Ted Turner, who owns Vermejo Park Ranch, said he wants Mexican wolves on his Vermejo Park Ranch. And so that person who worked for Ted Turner got a bunch of funding from Ted Turner and worked with some of the other scientists that I was on the team with and did a habitat analysis of where we should recover Mexican wolves. And in that habitat analysis, they they took the Grand Canyon National Park because they wanted wolves there, and they boosted that. In the model, they gave that twice the value just because it was a national park, not because of any ecological value or value to wolves, but just because it was a national park, they're going to give it twice the value. And Ted Turner's ranch, we're going to give that twice the value, the same as a national park, just because he... He's very ecologically conscious and he, he likes nature. And so we're going to boost that by a times two. And then everything in Mexico, right, right when you get to the international border, everything in Mexico, the value is going to be cut in half just because it's Mexico, not because of any ecological evaluation. So they did that analysis and then they stepped back and said, huh, looks like the three best areas to recover Mexican wolves are where they are now in central Arizona, New Mexico, Ted Turner's ranch in the Grand Canyon. Go figure. You know, that's amazing. And so those three areas are what advocacy groups and protectionist groups and wolf advocates right now 
keep over and over saying the scientists have decided that's best available science. And, mm. and, that's, and, and the agencies now, because of political reasons, are ignoring this good science. And it's, it's really bad science where they cooked the books to get the result that they wanted, where we teamed up with uh, after um, I actually resigned from that recovery team and wrote a long report highlighting the flaws and process and the science uh, that the rest of the team was was trying to prepare for the Fish and Wildlife Service. And that recovery team hasn't been officially disbanded, but it met once quickly after my report and then hasn't met again. And then several years after that, that was 2010 to 2012. And then several years after that, from 2015 to 2017, the Fish and Wildlife Service said, all right, this isn't working where we get a handful of academics in a conference room and have them write a recovery plan that can actually be implemented on the ground because they don't have any experience working with stakeholders and things like that. And so they, the Fish and Wildlife Service said, we're going to write the recovery plan. And we're going to pull in, we're going to invite all of those academics that were on the last recovery team. But we're also this time going to invite the state wildlife agencies because they're important partners in recovering endangered species. And course, we're going yeah. to, and we're going to, re, and we're going to also invite some additional academics that have some expertise. Why weren't the state the, wildlife agencies involved from the beginning? They, they fought my inclusion onto the science and planning subgroup because um, someone felt that state agencies don't have scientists we just have game wardens and we can't contribute oh my gosh um, at all because they're the scientists and they know they know best and so we don't need some state agency hack um telling mm -hmm. us that that our science is bad which um is what happened eventually um so <laughs> so they put together um 2015 2017 we had a series of eight workshops and we invited a whole bunch of mexican biologists that had some really important expertise um, we had Mexican um, uh, officials that were in charge of conservation organizations down there. We had two of our eight workshops in Mexico. And so we could bring more and more Mexican scientists and, and um, uh, some of the experts that have been working with Mexican wolves down there and doing publishing papers on Mexican wolves. So we really had this truly binational effort. All the people that were on the science and planning subgroup with me were invited and about half of those chose to uh, participate. Some of them, in fact, most of them did not like the outcome, but it didn't matter. This was a large, inclusive, binational collaborative process that resulted in the Mexican Wolf Recovery Plan in, in November of 2017. And that's the recovery plan that we're implementing. Now, a couple of those people that were on the science planning subgroup with me that really wanted Ted Turner's Ranch and the Grand Canyon, then sued they some environmental groups not those academics but some environmental groups sued the fish and wildlife service over the recovery plan and after a long drawn out court case the judge said supported the recovery plan and 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 supported everything in the recovery plan except for one thing the judge said that you were, um it could be stronger in protecting wolves from illegal killing and mm. so the judge then remands it back to the Fish and Wildlife Service to improve that one part. And the Fish and mm. Wildlife Service did, and just this year, then came out with the revised recovery plan that, that had some, um, in the implementation of the plan, had some stronger, some things that they were going to do to reduce illegal activity. And so the, it's it stood up to um, a judicial challenge by the, some of the environmental groups that didn't like, like the plan. So in that recovery plan, Jim, do we have a number? Do we have a number mm -hmm. of this is what we believe Mexican wolf recovery needs to get to to be considered 
you know, mm-hmm. not on the endangered species list yeah. any longer. Yep. Yeah. So you do, you've got to have some triggers. You can't have a plan that says, Hey, let's make a bunch more of them and then we'll delist. Exactly. Them. You know, you've got to have some triggers and, and those triggers have to be measurable. They have to be objective, measurable, and they have to be achievable. Those are, those are um, important parts of that. And so the, they're called recovery criteria. So the criteria mm-hmm. that we decide they're recovered. So the recovery criteria, the numeric one is we're going to have one population in the U.S., and that's the current population that's doing very well. Then we're going to, uh, and then Mexico is going to have one or two populations. It's their choice. We're not telling Mexico whether they should have one or two populations, but they're going to have at least 200 wolves in Mexico and at least 320 Mexican wolves in the U.S. And I think Mexico is going to have more than, than one population. So it's more than just that numerical. It also says that it has to be a 320 or 200 it has to be it has to average above that for eight years to be delisted mm-hmm. it has to have a positive population growth it can't be tanking when it's delisted the last three right. years have to be above 320 so there's some of those other caveats that just make that more that make that stronger so there's that numerical recovery criteria but also as i said we started with seven mexican wolves and so all mexican wolves on the planet are, are originating from those seven Mexican wolves. So we have to pay attention to genetic diversity and preserve yep. as they are in captivity. They're working really hard. And, and we could talk a long time about all of the things they're doing there to maximize the retention of genetic diversity uh, through time. And so they're retaining that genetic diversity. So there's a recovery criteria in there that says we need to infuse enough new genetic material into the wild populations to maintain that genetic diversity. And we did a population viability uh, analysis, a model using all of the latest Mexican wolf information. So it truly is best available science, not not some old stuff that those people did 15 years ago that I was on the recovery yeah. team with. So this latest population viability model, it won't tell you how many wolves you need before they're not endangered anymore, but it will tell you that if you're at this number of wolves, how will that population perform through the next 100 years? And so you can mm-hmm. look at population performance given actual mortality rates that are occurring in the population, actual reproduction of Mexican wolves. I mean, real data from that population feeding the model, not not guesses like, like was done in the past. The team that I was on, they were just pulling wolf information from Yellowstone and feeding their model. Um, mm-hmm. And there's people that still talk about that old model being best available science. And what we're doing is just politics. And it's ridiculous because we've got We've got uh, um, Phil Miller from the IUCN that oversaw that model. He's been doing this for 25 years for the IUCN around the world with endangered species. I mean, the guy's the guy's legit when it comes to doing um, population viability analyses. And so that that model then tells us we need a certain number of wolves released from captivity into the population in order to fuse enough genetic diversity. And we're doing that not by releasing adult wolves that spent their whole life in captivity and they're eating kibbles and bits out of a dog food bowl. But we're doing mm-hmm. that by a process called cross-fostering, which is a, um, a being fantastically successful way to infuse genetic diversity. And that's where we, not we, but the Fish and Wildlife Service with um, what's called the Species Survival Plan. So it's a whole bunch of captive facilities with the state agencies collaborating, uh, picking which male in the whole captive breeding population and which female, they might be in different states, which two wolves can we put together to produce the most genetically valuable pups for the wild population? Mm. And they do that. They ship a male from St. Louis to LA for the breeding season. They produce a litter of, of highly valuable 
pups. And then when those pups are a couple days old, they grab those pups out of captivity and they take them out to a wild Mexican wolf den in Arizona or New Mexico. And they go in and they insert one or two of these genetically valuable pups in a litter of the same same age. So they're tracking mm-hmm. when, these, when these wild females are denning. They know about when they're going to whelp their pups. And they go in there and they stick a couple genetically valuable pups into their den. And, and that has been, and then those pups that are growing up wild, staying out of trouble, growing up as wild wolves, but carrying those, those um, really important genes to infuse genetic um, diversity into the wild. And, and we're no, tracking I've... those pups. Those pups are surviving at about the same rate as, as the wild pups. And we're tracking those pups that are actually growing up and becoming alpha breeders themselves and having genetically valuable litters. And we have a couple of cases where those pups that the, the cross fostered pups had genetically valuable pups in the wild, that those pups are actually now breeding and having their own mm. pups. So we're really infusing this diversity into that so wild population. So there's still very much a, a, an active recovery using captive bred Mexican wolves being mm. still being infused into the population in the wild. Yes, it's a very active recovery program. It's not just throwing some wolves out there and kind of monitoring radio collars, but um, based on science, based on the best that we know, and and being very successful, the, the wild Mexican wolf population in Arizona, New Mexico, has increased from 2009 to the present, has increased an average annual increase of 13%, which is pretty tremendous. I mean, that's yeah, that's not amazing. far off Yellowstone in the early years when they were increasing. And so you'll see some groups that don't like the agencies, they don't like state and federal agencies, they don't like the recovery plan, complaining in the media at every opportunity about the failure and the incompetence of agencies and the failure of the Mexican Wolf Program. And I think they must have my graph sideways because the graph is going <laughs> up and up and up and up. And so every year we're getting record number of, of wolves in the population, minimum number of wolves, record number of breeders, record number of pups born. We're actually measuring the genetic diversity. There's four metrics that we're measuring genetic diversity in the wild population. Three of those four metrics of genetic diversity are improving. So things are going really well mm. in the Mexican Wolf Program, but you're not going to hear that in the media and, and in the yeah. op-eds from some because of the not good Because it's not good for business, Jim. It is not It doesn't good for raise business. money. That's right. That, that wildlife is recovering. Right. I get emails that say, you know, the Mexican wolf uh, uh, population is spiraling towards extinction. Uh, you know, there's a big donate button, you know, in the middle of the email. Donate to help us save the Mexican wolf. And um, a lot of people are duped by that. Yep. So right now, minimum population of the American, dare I say, would you call the American a DPS? No, it's not a DPS. That's an official legal okay. designation. So it's actually okay. a 10J area. So it's a re- it's a recovery area. Arizona, a covering area. So what's the minimum population of the American recovery area right yeah. now? What we do About is 200. Yeah, 196. So we survey them once a year at the end of the year because we can't be having these population estimates that are changing when pups are born and and when we find out a wolf gets killed by a car. And so we do it once a year, and that's the population estimate for the entire year until we do it again. So at the end of 2021, which was a year ago, um, there was a minimum of 196 wolves. And we know there's other wolves out there that we didn't, we didn't get to include in the count. So we know there's What about Mexico? How close is Mexico yeah. to their 200 marks? They're, they're at uh, 40 and 45, and that's been going slow in the last decade, and that gets criticism. But our Arizona and New Mexico population went slow for a decade, too. I mean, these things are controversial. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. There's people in both countries that are raising cattle and don't, don't like wolves. 
Um, and so it's a challenge. There's no doubt it's a challenge, but, but their, their population is growing. They've got uh, a pack that has had five litters in the wild, um, five successive litters in the wild and other packs that have had a couple litters. And in Mexico, <clears throat> there's some areas they can't go into. And, and some of the wolves that disperse and don't get radio collars, we're not sure where they are. I think, you know, I think mm. there's a chance that there's a lot more wolves setting up camp and starting their own packs in Mexico that is just a lot harder to track in that remote area. Yeah, so 200 of 320 is about 61%, 60% towards recovery, mm-hmm. um, almost 25%, 35%. Who knows what that percent is in the Mexican uh, population? Yeah. Um, and they'll have to be above 320 for a while. You know, it's not like we hit 320. Yeah, three years, there. right. But yeah, eight, yeah, eight years for, for D-list. Eight years. Mm-hmm. Eight years. There we go. There we go. For average. So, so Jim, let's pivot a little bit. Now that we've set the context, here's where we are. This is where we are from a Mexican wolf recovery perspective. What about things that are now out of your control, like Colorado? Colorado, through the ballot box, saying, we want our northern wolf back on the landscape. What what are your thoughts to that interaction, the northern wolves? Because you you did mention in the beginning sort of this almost, again, whether it was bad science or or something else, of this sort of cross-hybridization between mm-hmm. this northern wolf population in Colorado and this almost this middle middle ground between Mexican, yeah. pure Mexican and northern wolves. Yeah, so you'll, you'll hear people talk about Colorado being the missing link. We need to connect wolves from the Arctic to Mexico because they were connected at one time, and they were connected at one time. The problem is we talk about body size clines where we have large animals in the north and then as you go south through the latitudes they usually generally get smaller and smaller and we had that mm-hmm. with wolves we've got um big canadian wolves and we have these small mexican wolves that are that are smaller and then we had this intergradation of different wolf sizes through the continent and and what taxonomists call canis lupus nubilis in in the like the u.s footprint or the western u.s footprint and that was a middle-sized wolf but but that wolf in the continent of u.s in the lower 48 it was really wiped off of the the map and so what we have now is we have wolves in canada and alaska and we have and now those wolves being used to repopulate the northern rockies and then we have this little spot of mexican wolf uh distribution in Mexico and southwestern U.S. And some people are just saying, let's just mix those. But we can't recreate that that gradual climb. We lost all of those mid-sized wolves in the middle. And so now at this point, if you take some, some wolves that evolved in a Canadian situation and you, you let them start interbreeding with the Mexican wolf population while it's small and while it's still recovering, you're not going to get this natural blending and, and everything's going to be wonderful. You're going to get these larger dominant wolves with Canadian genes, even though they've been in the Northern Rockies for a while, and you're going to get those genes that will dominate these smaller Mexican wolves. So those larger wolves physically are going to dominate breeding positions, and their offspring are going to be bigger, and their offspring are going to dominate breeding positions. And this is called genetic swamping, where one, the infusion of just a few large Northern individuals can spread like wildfire Canadian genes through the Mexican wolf population. And these Mexican wolves were evolved for this arid Southwestern habitat. I mean, it means something that you evolved in a certain place for eons, um, and you can't just mix them with, it's called outbreeding depression, which can be more serious than inbreeding depression when you take an animal that's completely different and let them um, infuse their genes all over. But Jim, why would you say then, 
if they are evolved and adapted to those environments, why would you say that the northern wolf gene would be more dominant over them? Wouldn't it just fizzle right. out? Yeah, I think initially, I think after a while, some of that outbreeding depression might be a problem. But initially, you're going to get bigger wolf-dominating breeding positions. And there's a, there's a few things that science tells us allows or, or um, creates a situation where packs will accept new members. And one of those is a uh, smaller pack size. And Mexican wolves have a small pack size, four to five individuals. And that makes them vulnerable to want more wolves to help them hunt. Uh, the body size mm -hmm. difference is another issue. Another thing is that it's been found that wolves will more readily breed with less related individuals. And so if you have higher inbreeding levels, which we do in the Mexican wolves, they're going to be very anxious to, to breed with non-related individuals, no matter where they're from. And so that's going to foster the acceptance of a wolf into a pack and then the, that, that wolf then being in, a, in a, a breeding position. And then also with Mexican wolves, you've got a, a lot of social disruption with packs breaking up and some illegal mortality. And you've got, whenever you've got, Social disruption; they're more readily to accept a new, uh, right. new, a new breeder can can make inroads into it. So there's really a perfect storm set up right now with this small Mexican wolf population that's growing and doing well by itself, and it's kind of a perfect storm for them to accept a couple breeders with Canadian genes and and have a potential to do damage with uh, that the Mexican wolf recovering. So does the Fish and Wildlife Service not have a voice? Oh, in do. this Colorado recovery of wolves, and that to say, look, guys, we have spent millions mm -hmm. on Mexican wolf recovery. We spent 15 years getting to this point with one stroke of the pen just a little bit further north. You could lay into motion a undoing of all the work that we've done, and this is not something we're interested in doing. Yeah, the Fish and Wildlife Service is, is very much aware of that, and they're concerned about that as well. It's not like it's um, it's not like it's states against Fish and Wildlife Service. We are all working together um, right now to try to figure out what can be put in place to guard against something like that happening. And there are things that can be done in place that give some management flexibility for for getting wolves and bringing them back to where they should be. And so. That's all, you know, none of that's worked out yet. That's all in the in the mix now. But Fish and Wildlife Service that oversees Colorado and the Fish and Wildlife Service that oversees Mexican wolves are are talking and the, and they're talking to the states. And so all the states, we're all talking together about how do we how do we prevent some genetic damage um, from those northern wolves. But the issue is that the voters in Colorado, by a margin of Fifty-one by by a margin of yeah, fifty-one one, point one thousand six hundred votes or something yeah, stupid. It was yeah, it was fifty-one point one percent. No, fifty fifty point mm -hmm. nine fifty point one yeah fifty point mm -hmm. nine percent voted um, to bring wolves into Colorado, and that set into motion then that turned into a Colorado law, and the and the Colorado law says that um, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife will um, will make progress towards. Releasing. They're supposed to be releasing it now, aren't they? The wolf management plan is very close to being the, released, or has it been released? Plan, yeah, the wolf management plan has been released. It's um, it's out there, um, and it's out there and available to read for sure. Uh, but the the Colorado law actually says that Colorado Parks and Wildlife has to take the steps necessary to begin reintroduction of gray wolves by December thirty first, twenty twenty three. And so that's a, a year from now. So the law Correct. actually says they have to take steps. To begin introduction, um, the governor has said pause on the ground by then, not steps mm. to begin introduction, and so that's what the rush is. 
And so there's um, there's a rush now. The Fish and Wildlife Service is helping. Um, it's a Colorado action. See, that's the thing. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is reintroducing wolves, not Fish and Wildlife Service. Fish and Wildlife Service is helping Colorado Parks and Wildlife by get by fast tracking and designating what's called a 10J area in Colorado, which will give Colorado Parks and Wildlife more management flexibility than if they were just, otherwise they'd just be fully endangered because wolves are listed again. So Colorado Parks and Wildlife would have its hands tied if it was releasing fully endangered wolves. And, and really, that never happens. We nobody releases wolves without some kind of 10J management flexibility. Mm -hmm. And so, Fish and that's wildlife what they're going to get. They're going to get that special designation population, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, the Fish and Wildlife Service in both regions are working with Colorado and all the surrounding states to put that in place so that we've got some management flexibility. So, I think we're doing everything we can after someone's pushed the the snowball down the hill with the referendum, and um, and then you know we're all reacting to it to try to do the best we can. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Jim, the last thing that I want to sort of cover is you're a hunter, right? Yeah, absolutely. You like to hunt? Yep. I like um, to eat venison. You are, and you're also of the camp of wanting wolves on the landscape. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. What are your, you've been in this game a while. Do you think the public sentiment in the hunting community, hunting fraternity, is getting better? towards the idea of the idea of wildlife diversity on the landscape uh wolves being a part of that predators being a part of that versus the old school mentality of shoot shovel and shut up mm -hmm. do yeah. you think things are changing yeah i definitely do and there's a lot of media um like yours and like a lot of the other ones that are out there that i think are, are having these conversations and i've, I've talked about wolves on a couple of podcasts but we as as hundreds i mean i've written chapters on the north american model there there's there's it'd be hard to find people probably that have written more in support of hunting as uh, as a driver of conservation but i've also written about we as hunters we we brag about bringing elk back and canadian geese back and and um all of the other species turkeys back but we can't stop at a couple large predators i mean we we have a majority of the public that likes wolves and if hunters are going to place themselves on the opposite side of the table of a majority of the public um I think that that doesn't bode very well for the future of hunting. We've got 5% of the population that hunts. So we've got 90% of the public that doesn't hunt. And yet when you poll them, you find that 78 to 81% of the general public supports legal ethical hunting. That's tremendous that you've got, you've got 70 to, 77 to 81% of the public supporting something that 5% of the public does. And the reason they mm -hmm. support that is they see hunting as a positive force for conservation. They see that we're doing a positive thing for wild things in wild places. Now, if we start saying we don't want wolves, and those 77 to 81% of the people do want wolves, that's not a good position for hunters to be in. We just, we, we, need, to, we need to be supporting the restoration of all native species. And, and I think... Part of the reason hunters are getting a little more warm to the idea of having wolves on the landscape is because in places where we've had them for a long time, we found out that um, we haven't seen the death and destruction that some people were talking about. There's certain areas where wolves can impact an elk population. And a lot of times that's because there's some other nutritional problems compounding that the elk reproduction. Um, but in a majority of areas, you know, we've got wolves on the landscape. People talk about 
there's a ton of wolves in Alaska and, and everybody loves to go up there and hunt. I mean, I think if more wolves are on the landscape, the more hunters realize they're not really as bad as, as we thought they were. And we mm -hmm. just need to have some management flexibility in places. So when they do impact an elk population, people don't go out of their minds when we want to go kill some wolves to, to reduce the wolf predation on that population to help it. I mean, we need to manage predators and prey, but we as hunters, we better be supporting the restoration of predators and prey together. We should be, we should be uh, supporting positive conservation of native species. Mm -hmm. 100%. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> I bet you could. Mississippi State professor, <laughs> former Mississippi State to Mississippi State individual. <laughs> Jim, um, any final thoughts? I, it, yeah, I, I don't know. We could, you know, we could talk for a week on Mexican wolf recovery, um, 100%. but we don't want to. But there's so many, so many complicated, interconnected um, facets um, related to historical range and genetics and and um, some of the academic advocates trying to push science that they put together and they're trying to push it because they want to see a particular policy outcome and we really need to be skeptical of everything, skeptical of everything I say, skeptical of everything everybody says, and and hold people's feet to the fire to have good science. Um, and, and it's hard for the agencies that are, that are recovering wolves to, to push back against the flood of advocacy groups and the nonsense they put out. I, I constantly am reading things uh, on the internet that are completely false and easily proven to be false that advocates are saying, but it's not an advocate's job to provide unbiased um, scientific information. It's the advocate's job to advocate for what they want. And the public, right. I think, has a difficulty discerning between the advocate's message and professional um, agency's message on, on wolf recovery and a lot of things. Yeah, you know, I think that the science piece is, is one thing that we didn't touch on today and we can we can keep that for our trophy hunting discussion yeah. the next time it is the same uh, because yeah. there's certainly something that that, that is pervasive there it, it, uh, let me ask this question just to sort of wrap things up do you think that science is becoming more subjective when it comes to because you're as an academic as a professor, when I was a professor, you're supposed to sit as an unbiased, mm -hmm. and science is supposed to be unbiased. You're not supposed to go in with a predetermined outcome or desired outcome. And with these big predators, let me just use predators or big charismatic species, there seems to be, there's going to be a lot of money associated with those predators. And academics are always looking for money. I don't know how to catch this without. Um... <laughs> Are we seeing influence? Are we seeing these academics being influenced by the money, so that their science is being influenced to, to drive mm. the the the. The outcomes that are best suited so that they continue to receive money? See, I don't think so because the the groups that are sending me emails well, that's saying good. saying donate now, I, that money's not flowing to academics to do research. It is in some cases, but okay. that's not a big pipeline of money from these that's good from to, these yeah. advocacy groups to academics. The bias comes in with academics is just simply their personal opinion, where their mm. values and their opinions are aligned 100% with those advocacy groups. 
but they're a professor and they're doing research. And so when it comes time to, to lay out the results of the research, and then they get to that bottom section, which is the funnest, it's called discussion, where you get to talk about the importance of your results and how your uh, results apply to the real world, apply to conservation. And that's where they can opine about their opinion about what needs to be done uh, about where wolves need to be covered or what agencies need to be due. And so then that gets locked into a, a peer-reviewed scientific paper. And then other people point to it and say, well, the scientists say, and it's really an individual that uh, is, is just, his ideas are aligned very closely with these advocacy groups. And so he's writing almost, sometimes almost talking points from these advocacy groups into the scientific paper. But I don't think it's a money flow thing. It's just a personal opinion more and more people in academia um, align themselves with with a lot of the ideas of the advocacy groups and so you see that in the scientific literature yeah yeah i get that i get that well jim it's been a pleasure my man uh it's been too long uh, let's not wait another nine months to do another one yeah um, definitely we'll figure yep. out our schedules uh by the way congratulations on your dallas safari club award thank big, you big news you're going to be in dallas i am going to be in dallas yep you going to be there the entire time? No, I have to go to the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies meeting. So I'll be there the 4th through the 6th, and then I've got to go to um, right to, to Santa Fe. Well, um, if you have a little bit of time in your schedule, knowing you, you're probably like me. Um, I'll bring my podcast equipment. We can do it face-to-face, -face, okay. the next one. And I'll be in Dallas the entire time. So Okay. Fantastic. Let's try to work that out. Let's, and congratulations. Okay, but congratulations to you for getting the Arizona Game of Fish Commissioner's Media of the oh, Year man. Award. And what what was the the latest one? The Conrad Vermark. Yeah, Conrad Vermark is the. It used to be tied in with FAS, the Professional Hunters Association of South Africa. It now moved to Custodians, and it's the Distinguished Service Award. Yeah, um, fantastic! For Congratulations to the hunting industry. Yeah, yep. thank you. We That's don't good do it for I'm, awards, I'm, just like you. You know. Yeah, I'm glad. I, well, I'm glad that I'll see you in Dallas. And and if people are interested, follow me on Instagram. I'm Servidnut, C E R V I D N U T. Yeah, and any um, you just you know type in Jim Heffelfinger. You've done a bunch of science. You've done a bunch of good work on uh, trophy hunting, and as you said, hunting advocacy as a as a strong wildlife conservation tool. So, Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure, my man. And uh, yeah, thank you for everything that you do for us and and all the support you give. Yeah, likewise. I'll see you soon then. Yes, sir. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.